My name's Glenn True. Uh, I'm here representing the Cinema Audio Society, the CAS, um, in, in cooperation with Mix Magazine to put on, on this event, Sound for TV and Film. Um, and the, the, um, the topic here is ambisonic recording, ambisonic recording, the future is back. Um, and the reason I came up with that title is because um, ambisonic, the, the first um, microphone technique I, I remember from 30, 35 years ago of ambisonic recording, which in essence is, is surrounds, true, true surround sound or 3D recording. It's from the uh, Soundfield microphone. Um, and it was, uh, you know, some fantastic recordings have been made with it. Um, you know, classical music comes to mind, um, certain ambiences made with it. Uh, but it, I think it uh, never really hit mainstream really hard, at least not from my perspective as a production mixer for TV and film. Um, but now, uh, with, with video gaming, uh, virtual reality, um, on and on and on, there, there's more interest in a, a natural um, ambience you know, recording. Uh, so the sound field and other microphones now are being looked at you know, really closely and how they can be used for, uh, I think, eventually uh, television, film, broadcast, uh, sound recording. Um, so the, um, and also there's a lot of uh, manufacturers of the recorders that we typically use in TV and film sound, sound devices, uh, the Aton Cantar, even Zoom uh, recorders, uh, already have the, 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 the capability of facilitating ambisonic recording. So being able to record uh, the ambisonic tracks on, on separate ISO tracks uh, in, in a certain way, in a certain mode, and be able to facilitate monitoring to some degree so you can hear, you get a sense of what you've recorded. Uh, so it's highly specialized, but uh, I guess the point of that is to say that it's, it's adventurous enough that it's, it's uh, it's no longer a, a boutique kind of a non-mainstream technique that, that uh, won't, won't really be used very much. I think it's going to be used an awful lot in the years to come. And so the purpose of this group is to um, explain what, what we know about it and give you some ideas about how, how it will be used. Um, so the, the panel um, we've got here is, is pretty varied. Uh, to my left here is Joel Dueck. Okay, Joel Dueck. Uh, with uh, Eco VR, um, and he's, he has a lot of experience with uh, uh, VR recording. Uh, one, one thing we're going to be talking about since I brought up the term VR is what this is called. Uh, VR is often used, virtual reality. Um, ambisonic is a term often used. Uh, 3D, uh, a type of surround. So we'll get, as the panel, uh, as we progress through the panel, we'll talk about exactly what it's called and how these terms are used. Um, so thanks for joining us, Joel. Um, and to his left is Scott Kramer. Uh, Scott's an audio engineer for Netflix. And I'm really happy to have Scott here so he can talk about this technique and what all is involved, the cost-benefit uh, ratio that studios look at. Um, so so uh, Scott's gonna give his, per his perspective from the studio's point of view. And then to his left is Scott Gershon, he's a sound designer, um, with, uh, from what I can tell, extensive experience with uh, VR slash ambisonic recording. All right, so thank you, Scott. And then to his left is Ben Adams, uh, who is involved in, in the production recording of ambisonic recording techniques, as well as manipulating it in post-production. All right, so, um, so here, here we go. 
Um, I've kind of given the overview of, of, um, of, of what ambisonic is. Um, you know, it's you know, three-dimensional. I think of it as a production mixer, I think a lot about ambience because it's, um, as, as a production mixer, I think when we record dialogue, we're actually recording a lot more than dialogue. We're recording the set. And ideally, uh, the set has a character sound all its own. If we're working on a set that's got uh, marble floors, uh, you know, big heavy drapes, and in a large mansion-type room, for instance, I want it to sound like it looks. I think that's one thing we should do. Uh, as a production mixer, we record things so that in post-production, they can you know, make, make that happen. Um, so for me, the biggest interest for me personally with this ambisonic te technique is in ambience. Uh, I can imagine uh, having, a, if a show is wanting to use this te the technique throughout, uh, having an ambisonic mic um, on just about every set, recording isolated on its own tracks for use later in post-production. Um, so so that's, that's how I see it, and that's the, the general overview of this, of this panel. Also to say that when you mention the term VR and VR sound, we instantly think about you know, goggles or video games um, and, and that, that type of synthetic uh, environment. But I want, to, I want us to go beyond that and think about its use and potential use in cinema. When I say cinema, I mean uh, uh, feature films, uh, theaters, um, television production, and then, of course, uh, uh, live broadcast or sports broadcasting, because there's an awful lot of really nice ambience in, you know, in, in sporting events. So, all right, so we're going to go down the list. In, and uh, Scott, if you'll, um, since you've got more experience than I in, the, um, in, in this area, uh, give us your overview of the technique, uh, how, you, how you have seen it used, and the possibilities for its use in cinema. Okay, so... Um I've used two kinds of multi-channel mics. I use like DPA 5100s and, and Sankins, which are five-channel, like think of them as shotguns. Um, and then I use ambisonic mics. Now, the difference being is a, a mic like a 5100 is going to cover the horizontal plane. It's going to cover in front, back, um, but it doesn't go in a spherical environment. One of the reasons why ambisonic was picked up uh, for VR is VR is, is ambisonic, which means, I'm oh, sorry, is uh, spherical, which means you get height and you get, you get height as well as, as, as uh, a width and, and basically the horizontal plane. So what happens automatically with ambisonic mics is you're going to get what's above you, below you, and what's around you in a sphere. Now, a lot of mics you see, you see four capsules. That is considered first order ambisonic. Then you can get uh, second order, which is eight, and then third order, which is 16. What this really means is, is that when you hear, let's say, in a theater, stereo, there's a big hole in the middle. Like in music, we, we, we call it phantom center. But when you start spreading it out, you lose that point. So what did we do? We came out with a center speaker, and they got three speakers across the front. Same thing when you go first order, second order. So when you get first order, you're doing a lot of phantom centers or phantom not centers, but phantom between two capsules of where it's going to go. So when you start getting to second order, you get more detail, and third order, yet even more detail. So what happens is you start getting less of a smear and way better imaging. So if you want to hit stereo, the imaging, I think it's like a 2 or 3% uh, smear rate on stereo, I think first order is like 25% smear rate. It's pretty high. 
Uh, then you get second order, it's like 15. And then I think third order, I think, was 3%. I, I'm, it's around that. Um, so what smear rate basically means is isolation. So let's say the two guys there, if they said something, in first order, I may not be able to tell the difference. In second order, I can tell the difference. In the third order, I can definitely tell the difference of where they're sitting. So when you go record, now you've got spherical information. Now, in, in cinema, that lends, its well, uh, lends itself well to Atmos. So now you can start having uh, uh, vertical information if you choose to uh, want to use that. But do you realize that when you are working in a multi-channel environment, you have to realize the whole environment. So if you're holding the microphone, you can't because you're going to breathe into the surrounds or into the back of it. And realize that if you're on a set, because I was a boomer operator for a short time, and when they say quiet on the set, sometimes that means, okay, I'll keep working, but working quieter. <laughs> and because you've got a shotgun, uh, you can't hear it, but now you hear everything. And if you're doing a Western and somebody's uh, grips, you know, putting some stuff away, you're gonna hear that too. So when you start recording in a spherical environment, or immersive, however, whatever words you wanna use, you have to be very keen to understand that everything, it's like basically recording a 360 picture. You see everything. So in, in ambisonic, you're going to hear everything. So some things make it more conducive. Music's wonderful. Uh, crowd noises are great for, uh, for Book of Life. I went down to Mexico and rented a, a bullring and then brought 100 people and moved them around. And I wanted the sound of a bullring rather than throwing it through a reverb and you know, and making it sound not so good. That's a great place, wonderful. So you capture all of the, the ambiences of that bull ring, the reflections off the back and everything else. So did you have the microphone in the center of the ring to get that, that effect? You know, I, I actually had a lot of different microphones, but I did have some multi-channels and some ambisonic mics. And, and I had different at different points because I wanted to emphasize. So I automatically knew that I wanted it to be front heavy so I moved it a little closer to the front. Um, also, I wanted to get more delay in the back slap. So by putting it in the front, it took that much longer to come back at me, which exaggerated the surrounds a little more. So it worked out really nicely. So, so mic placement is still very important, not just in the center for, for the sphere. Absolutely, mic placement is everything. And, and do realize that ambisonic is a miking technique. And just because you have an ambisonic mic doesn't mean it sounds great or it's even the right mic. I've got two, three dozen microphones, and every mic is a color. And every mic, some do great with loud sounds and low sounds and deep sounds and detail sounds. And so really the question we start getting into is, okay, you're gonna start using an ambi mic, which one? What are the characteristics? You know, can I get in, and can Sennheiser make an ambi mic that's got 8040s built into it rather than the, the, the capsules they use? So all these different things. Some, some microphones have great reach. For me, an ambisonic mic or a multi-channel mic should have a great reach. So I can hear things at a distance to be able to capture them. Um, because the stuff I'm gonna capture close would be, it just wouldn't work for me, I think, on that front. All right, good, th thank you very much. So, so Ben Adams, um, let's see. So if you would just tell us a bit about your experience with uh, ambisonic, um, both as a, as a a production recordist, uh, as well as a, a recording mixer. 
Sure, yeah, so I'm a production mixer. I've been doing it for about 10 years, and the last four years got into uh, VR, and so naturally, um, to match the spherical image of the VR camera, um, the best solution is ambisonics, so um, started getting into ambisonics uh, through VR that way, and um, now we're seeing all sorts of different ways to uh, use ambisonics um, in traditional media as well, so, um, sound effects recording, ambient recording. Um, we're even, I have a job this weekend that we're at a haunted house and we're doing live triggering of sound cues for sound effects. So we're re-recording, we're pre-recording um, the sound effects in the house, in the actual space with the Amazonics mic um, and mono mics uh, using it um, for traditional uh, techniques, for mm -hmm. traditional output. Mm -hmm. um, also do a lot of stereo uh, output for uh, concerts, so we use the ambisonics mic for a crowd mic, um, decode it down to stereo, and use it in traditional ways like that for a very immersive uh, crowd experience, feeling like you're right in the middle of the crowd. Um, yeah. Okay, so what, what ambisonic mics have you used in those, some of those projects? Um, bunch of different pro bunch of different ambisonics mics, uh, like Scott said, different projects yield uh -huh. for different microphones mm -hmm. based on the color and stuff, but um, I, I own a Soundfield SPS 200, mm -hmm. which is uh, a very high-end uh, first-order microphone. Um, good color, good uh, response. Um, so I use those. We use uh, Tetra mics, Octa mics, which is a second-order uh, Amazonics mic, like Scott was talking about, has eight capsules, so it has a lot more detail. Um, we've also used quad binaural microphones, uh, like the HEAR 360 microphone, um, the 8-ball. And uh, yeah, just whatever kind of the production calls for, we, we have different tools to you know, meet the requirements of, of that job. All right, great. So Joel Duet, uh, tell, tell us about how you've used the, the ambisonic recording technique. Um, well, similarly, you know, I run a company that um, really just is dedicated to immersive media. So just doing sound and music for immersive media. And so very quickly, like for Ben, uh, when you're dealing with a sphere, you want to be looking at something that can capture that sphere and that can capture that height effectively. So we, you know, we, we early on adopted recording in ambisonics and we own a few, including the, um, I guess, somewhat affordable uh, Sennheiser Ambio, which has become a pretty popular one. Um, and, um, and in that kind of situation, usually uh, for VR, uh, you're putting the microphone coaxially and in the same location as the camera. The camera is basically capturing a sphere of light and you want your microphone to capture a sphere of sound. Um, but, you know, one of the things um, I think we all know is that there are some failings uh, of Amazonic mics, just like any microphone, mm -hmm. which is that a lot of the time, um, most of the time when we're dealing particularly with narrative uh, projects, uh, you want to have that kind of presence when people are talking. And that's not necessarily something you're automatically going to get with an ambisonic mic. But it really is, it's able to give you a um, kind of set it and forget it spatial field of your ambience. There are many situations where it can, that can be enough. For example, if you uh, are recording a band, we recorded a big band uh, a few days ago, and it sounds fantastic because it's loud enough. Um, you know, again, you're dealing with four capsules means four times the noise floor. Uh, so all these considerations. But if you've got, you know, nice volume, then it'll work great. And then you don't need to spend a lot of time in post-production figuring out 
where to position things in the in the spatial field. It's done. It's ready to go. Um, so then we'll bolster um, our ambisonic mic with a lot of traditional uh, microphone techniques. So we can't use booms because the VR camera sees everything, so you just can't have someone in the field. So we have to get creative with planting microphones and um, various kinds and labs in little hidden places and then ourselves going and hiding. Um, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty fun. And we've done this in situations from the Amazon jungle to Africa to more traditional sets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and this is a question for anybody. Um, can, can you see it working um, in a more traditional, let's say traditional in the way we currently do dialogue for films now, and having an ambisonic mic for the, the ambience, uh, while more close miking the actor either with an overhead boom or lav, and, and then uh, you know, working those together. And I know you've got phasing issues to think about primarily, but uh, if there's a way that you can do that so that you can control the, uh, the distance perspective or the presence while still benefiting from the surround of the, an ambio mic. Is, is that something that, that you've yeah, we, done in the past? We, we do that all the time. So we'll, we'll, add, okay. we'll add the lavaliers to the Amazonics mic. And the Amazonics mic in a, on a set for in a VR type environment that's recording in sync um, would serve mo mostly as the bass layer, as the feel. Mm -hmm. um, so you would still, you know, in the mix, your, your lav mic is still going to be the, the close miking and you're still going to have most of the presence from that. And there, you can work on the phase relationship. It's not too difficult to, mm -hmm. to figure out. Mm -hmm. I have to also yep. say that when you're in production, you've got to make sure that the production is worth recording. You might be on a set and it looks like something really cool, or I did a submarine movie that all of a sudden it just doesn't sound all that good. So you can capture it, but it may not be the sound that you think you want later. Mm -hmm. But it is always good to capture it, I guess. It, it doesn't hurt. Um, mm -hmm. But you've got to take that into account. So when the location scouts are looking at facilities, you know, you've got to find out what does it acoustically sound like? Is it next to the freeway? Th things that we never thought of before might pollute, uh, and you might get more than you wanted. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right, so you've got some good points developing here. Uh, so Scott Kramer, um, g give us an idea of what uh, you consider as an engineer for Netflix and how, how this, what the future holds for ambisonic recording. Uh, well, to go back, I think the but way before I was at Netflix, the first film I saw MS Miking used was uh, Gus Van Sant's Elephant, and it was pretty stunning the way the it sounded. And there was a center channel, and I could distinctly understand dialogue. And I also had a real sense of the space of where the camera was on the day, and less had to be done in post production because of that rich. Uh, starting point of the MS technique being used on the set. And Gus has done that on, on all of his films uh, since, as far as I know. Um, so that all fast forwards to today where I'm at Netflix and we have a lot of reality shows. We call it unscripted uh, comedy specials. Uh, we have documentary series like Planet Earth style shows from Bristol. And we have Discovery Channel style shows and we have uh, new genres coming out. We have comedy uh, specials and, and just so much where we're, we have a camera that's presenting the perspective of what was happening there and, a, and presenting either a reality or a dist distillation of reality, an interpretation of reality. And it isn't a completely reinvented uh, narrative uh, like we're used to in TV and film. So 
it, it just makes sense that we would try to record what's happening there during the shoot and not just rely on mono sources for boom and laugh, but supplement it with something else. And I don't see this becoming a, any kind of requirement, but I think it's a useful as a filmmaking technique. And as we begin to do uh, unscripted series or documentary series in Atmos, we're going to want a richer sound palette to use to carry through post-production. And so for us right now, it's an, it's an experimentation phase. I was just with uh, some experts from Avid and a, a sound mixer who does Tom Petty uh, and many other uh, live sound shows and has done a lot of concert recording, learned about a whole new dimension of difficulty when there's spot miking on a stage, which has to be delayed to combine with a sound field capture in the middle of the audience and, and figuring out those delay factors and phase relationships can be really dif difficult, particularly if there's an array of microphones. In many comedy specials, we're recording up to 20 or 30 microphones out in the crowd. Uh, and the more you can place those near the crowd, uh, the better off you are. But it's been very effective when we have a big array of microphones on a comedy special and we're doing that in Atmos. It sounds great and it works and it's worth the investment and it makes you feel as a viewer as if you're in the audience. Uh, and that there's something kind of very impactful about that. So uh, right now it's an exploratory research effort that we'll be doing for about the next six months and we're gonna do a variety of recordings apart from shows at interesting music venues around LA and uh, exterior up at the forest uh, in the city ambience and the idea is to just try out all the different microphone uh, and see what works the best. So we're going to try the Sheps 3D microphone array. Uh, we're going to try ambisonic microphones, first, second, and third order. And we're going to try uh, whatever we can get our hands on, double MS, um, the, the Sankin, all the rest. And the idea is to release them somehow openly uh, on the Netflix tech blog and allow people to listen to these and decide for themselves what works in what application and what doesn't. And just as a way of promoting the technique. Uh, and not, it's not the kind of thing we would enforce or, or require in any way, but I just think it's something that uh, sound mixers should consider as we begin to go beyond 5.1. It, it could have been useful for the last 20 years in 5.1, but it, for some reason it, it kind of fell through the cracks. And I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity now to kind of to bring it back and, and bring more relevance to what's happening uh, on these shoots. Uh, and, and it's to, to be combined with lavaliers and booms. And, mm -hmm. and it won't always be used. And we know that going sure. into it. We, we're going in with eyes open, wanting to place the mics on the sets. Sometimes we won't be able to place the right mic array because it won't be as convenient as a boom. Uh, sometimes we won't be able to get the right mixture, uh, but sometimes it'll be very useful and magical. And that's kind of what we're the most excited about is the doc series and the comedy specials that we're talking to where they're already interested in trying this out. All right, cool. Well, th thanks a lot. So uh, here, well, one thing I wanted to mention is um, uh, hearing this maybe for the first time, people might be thinking, yeah, we're talking about something in the next, you know, 20 years, 10, 10 20 years. And uh, this is nice to talk about, but it's not the way things are going to happen. So I'll remind you that this, those exact words were used about, I remember, 15 plus years ago when the, the concept of adding metadata to the production soundtracks was discussed, right? It got a lot of, uh, you know, shaking of the head and, no, we're not ever going to do that. Now everybody does it. 
is expected and required. So I think the same thing will happen even, even sooner with, with the ambisonic technique. So I keep, I've heard several times from several of you about the, the term the sphere, right? So I take that to mean it's not only a, a circle, but it's everything within the, the sphere. Um, and I've heard it often talked about that it's not only left, right, up, down, and back, and left, right, back, but it's maybe in front of you, but three feet to the left, or a little deeper, maybe 10 feet. Does this ambisonic technique, does it allow manipulation in post so that you can vary the, the depth of, of, of the sound you want? Jump into that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, from, yeah, from the kind of the VR technique, uh, definitely. I mean, that's really what we, we want to be able to do is to have a good representation of any point in that sphere. And so we think of it so much, uh, not so much as an ambisonic recording technique, but as an ambisonic workflow. Uh, because we're going to take ambisonic and other recordings, point single mono recordings, and we'll bring them all into Pro Tools. Um, and our then post-production features effectively ambisonic encoders and decoders uh, that give us the effectively, you know, what you're used to as a surround panner, but with height. And so then we can position things and we can automate things anywhere in that sphere um, uh, to a fairly high degree of precision. And then we can, we can then render that out for um, headphones. So that'll use a psychoacoustic tool of uh, head-related transfer functions to create a binaural version of that. Or you can send it out to a multi-channel speaker system. Um, so there's lots so of the, possibilities. So the, the panner that you mentioned, I suppose it's like a joystick. Yeah, I mean, we'll just use it in most cases. We'll use it in software base. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of any super cool panel yet that lets us right. do height. But, but I guess what you're... Some people have like jerry-rigged a, a JC Cooper and stuff like that. But generally, we're using it software. Okay. And, and so, so I guess what you're manipulating, among other things, is the, the, the center of, of or where in that sphere the listener is sitting. Yeah. Is that accurate to say? Uh, not just where the listener is sitting, but also where that um, source is representing itself. Mm -hmm. Because very often you'll have both moving at the same time. Uh, okay. you know, oh, listener is moving and the source is moving. So you need to be able to represent both. Yep. So you're, you're taking, for example, uh, almost if you treat it as an object, a sound mm -hmm. object, then you'll take that and you'll say, okay, I'm tracking its movement. You're watching video and, and you're tracking its movement. And so you'll, you'll define its azimuth and its height mm. and its distance, those three axes, mm -hmm. at every single point as yeah. you go, as a regular automation. Right. You know, part, part of the goal, um, a major goal of, let's say, feature films is to make the uh, audience feel like they're actually in, the, in, in that world with the actors and everything else. And I think nothing can bring an audience into that moment, into that imaginary moment, uh, more, more than sound itself. Uh, and it's been mentioned that... Um, uh, IMAX films, you know, the 70 millimeter wraparound uh, pr projections is, you know, was designed just for that, to bring people into that moment so they feel a part of it. Um, I think the, um, and, and to a large degree it accomplished that. Um, but I think ambisonic sound or three-dimensional sound recording to go along with that will have, even have a more pronounced effect in bringing the audience into feeling like they're actually there experiencing themselves. So, um, so, Speaking of ambience, um, this might be the uh, the rebirth of 30 seconds of room tone. You think? <laughs> so uh, so it's which has you know kind of been dying a slow death. 
Um, but do you see it as, as being a room tone with, with this technique as being something useful? Yeah, I, th I think one of the things, uh, two, th two thoughts on this, and that is, you know, a lot of times we think of reverb, and you, you, you get your, whether it's a lexicon, or you get your altiverb, or, you know, pick the reverb of your choice. And you try to, as best as you can, fill it in the room. And it just, it has a sound. Sometimes it's a good sound. Sometimes it's not really the sound. So you can also think of, of ambisonic as kind of creating the reverb track built in to that space. Um, the other part sometimes I've done is I've gotten rid of the fronts, so I don't have phase really issues, and I use them for the surrounds. So I use the ambisonics, and this way I've got that really nice detail, that crisp up front, but I've still got the ambient surround, and it still gives that listener. Because one of the problems that's faced in VR and in film is... Uh, I can only focus on so many things. And really what it comes, we were talking about presence before and focus. When I first uh, started uh, playing with multi-channel reverbs, I was uh, part of the Lexicon team with 960. I said, oh, this is going to be great. I can create rooms and it'll be all around the room. And, and you'll live in the ambience and this will be great. And in, in headphones, it really works. In theaters, it doesn't. Let me explain. So I'm gonna create a really tight room in a really big room. And I'm gonna have dialogue and it's going to play everywhere. Well, now the dialogue is all around me and I'm in a small room, but it's playing in a big room. And it's a really weird psychological thing that doesn't kind of work. Um, so all of a sudden, that dialogue is no longer focused on the screen, it's everywhere. But it's small, but it's big. So your ear and your brain is trying to figure out, it's hearing two different messages. I got this short kind of reverb thing, it's a big room, and it, it just, I find it gets a little squirrely. So then everyone took the 960 and stopped doing multi-channel and started doing multiple stereos on all the 960 lexicon reverbs. So when you look now in the day of saying, hey, I can make dialogue as if you live in it, great on headphones. Maybe better and maybe also might work at home. In a big theater, I'm not sure. That's something that, now where ambisonic mics and, and, and multi-channel mics are great is a lot of times when I'm doing crowds or music and you now want to put it in the hallway, down the hall. That's amazing. Because now all of a sudden, uh, like we were talking about the bullring, I put some uh, microphones down the hallways because there's times where they're walking out into the bullring. So now I wanted to hear the crowds and all that. Not, I didn't want EQ, I didn't want to roll off the highs. I put a microphone in the hallway, and, and that was a perspective. One of the things that video games does, and we have to look at interactive titles, whether it be video games, uh, virtual reality, or whatever, is that as we change perspective, we can also change microphones. Many times we've taken a high cut and kind of give you the feel like you're opening it up. But in gaming, what a lot of times you can do is crossfade between different samples. So now you're getting high fidelity in the distance and, and close up. So using multi-channel microphones is a fascinating discussion. So even in TV and production, that if somebody is hearing something from a different perspective, that the camera will eventually shoot you can have that microphone set up from a different perspective of where the camera's gonna shoot, and you have those takes available. Just something to think about. Mm -hmm.
Great. Um, let's see, there's a, a few different microphones that are being talked about a lot with Ambisonic in mind. Uh, the Sennheiser Ambio is one. Soundfield is another. Um, the the uh, double MS. Um, who wants to take a shot at describing the, the differences? Ben, I see your hand working slowly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but you're, you're familiar. In, in so you you own a sound field, right? I own a sound field. Let, yeah. Let's start there. Explain what, how that works. So it's a four-channel capsule. It's in a tetrahedral array. So um, and that, that term again? Tetrahedral. So it's a it's a four-channel. Okay. Height. Yeah. So it has height information. You know, pointing in four different directions. Mm -hmm. um, all first-order microphones are tetrahedral, They're, so they have the height information. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the difference between different first-order microphones, they're all using different capsules, and um, so they all sound slightly different. Um, the difference, be I guess, I mean, what, what do you want to know about the specifics? Of, well, of the the, 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 uh, for instance, I know that the, uh, the recorders that, that can facilitate ambisonic recording uh, they seem to need to have a different uh, built-in app for, for the Ambio by Sennheiser, uh, and the one for Soundfield is, is different. Well, you don't need to have the integration of the A to B in the recorder. You can just record the raw, discrete... That would know, be just, just for playback, right? Yeah, it, basically that's only for playback um, and for monitoring which you know is very useful on set, but you know post production will likely take the raw A, a track. Mm -hmm. um, it's A format when it's in the discrete four channel, and then B format once it's been converted. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll usually post production will take the, the raw A format, and they will right. do the A to B conversion um, right. with their own plugins rather than the built-in plugins from the F8. Yeah. So, but the difference because when I look at them, they're both they both have four capsules, right, uh, in, in a similar looking array. So why, why would they require different uh, methods for playback? Uh, they, they, they wouldn't. Okay. They ship, they ship their own decode method. I think how you decode is just as important as how you record. In many cases, I've heard this from some sound designers who are experimenting with Soundfield, is that they really, I've heard some good feedback that the Sheps decoding app is great. I believe it's freely available. Mm -hmm. um, but the the Soundfield decoding uh, device, I believe it's a hardware unit, and there's an app as well. It's, For the 450. Yeah, it's it, has, great. it has a hardware device. Yeah, yeah, and they're all slightly different, but what you do with it after is just as important. How you pan it in the Atmos sound field or how you decode it for the most natural. That, that was always true of MS, is how much center versus how much side is very important to the, the end result. So it's kind of a conversation with post. But I know the Kantar... Uh, has Soundfield decoding on board now, or is just they, about they, to? They, they may. The last yeah. I talked to them, uh, you know, they have Ambio. Yeah. They had that first. Yeah. And they said that um, Soundfield requires a lot more processing power. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, didn't really understand why. I thought, right. I didn't know if anybody did. So, um, yeah. But anyway, the, the, according to Kantar, the, this, to facilitate the... Um, the, the B format of Soundfield requires more processing power than Ambio. I don't know why. But, uh. One of the things I also found, which is very important to know because we found it out by accident, a lot of location mixers, uh, device mixing devices, were meant to record multi-channel mono, like eight dialogue mics. And here's a problem. And there's a manufacturer out there, I don't know if I should say, 
um, who, when you basically put all the knobs at zero, you can have a 2 dB difference. So now, when you say, I want everything to be exactly the same input, it may not. And so we got one of those and we returned it. Um, and it's a big brand. Um, because we found out that we couldn't keep our image. So now we have to figure out, is our image off or is it the placement of the mic and where that person was? And now all of a sudden we start chasing our tail because we don't know where you know, well, unity gain the is on a channel like may have been different. Yeah, because what I wanted to simply do was uh, take all the uh, eight mics or eight inputs, gang them together on like a VCA control and be able to control it with one volume. Right. But when I did that, uh, we started doing tests and we started getting about a two to two and a half dB difference between mm -hmm. all the different channels and, and obviously that's a big problem. Right, I know that Cantar uh, and I, I, you know, Aton with their Cantar recorder and I assume the other manufacturers too, Sound Devices, Zoom and whoever else comes out with it. Um, when you go into uh, uh, Ambio recording mode, uh, it, it's routes everything to a single knob and the gain is, is within a quarter dB. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you, you have to, you can only really do that with digital gains, and that's one important thing that, you know, if you're using maybe more consumer level stuff, um, uh, it won't work on some recorders. You can't just approximate and say, well, that, I've set them all the same. They have to be digital gains. As Scott said, they have to be absolutely as perfectly matched as possible, mm -hmm. or what you're gonna get is not a sphere, you're gonna get an ellipse or some other kind of And some um, of them shape. figure you could do with trims, but then when you gang them together, you lose the trim capability, and now it's your, your yeah. Yeah, plus when you ride gain like that, it, it can vary depending on where your master fader is. I bet, so, good. All right, so uh, we're, we're getting down to our allotted time, so, and we're gonna have time for a Q&A. So be thinking about some questions, and uh, hopefully we, we can get some answers for you. Um, so, the, um, but back to the scenario I was imagining, which is during a production, having an ambio mic, let's say up high on a 10-foot tall boom, um, always recording those tracks as, as ISOs, um, do, do you see that as, as overkill, or do you see it as something that could possibly be used in, in the final mix? I sort of see it as overkill. I think um, the best thing would to be run the scene and then get your ambience like you typically would and oh, you know redone. right afterwards just uh, redo the scene right after mm -hmm. we have to do that in vr a lot um because you can't record everything uh live so we're, we're doing a lot of passes um sound effects passes you know on set so we're getting the, the correct reverb doing it right after um mm -hmm. i think that's probably the the way that ambisonics can be used the most in cinema for for ambience type recording mm -hmm. and like i said sound effects recording the, another cool thing about uh, ambisonics too is that you have this sphere of sound but you can manipulate it in post to create like we were talking about stereo 5.1 all these other multi channels but you can also go back to mono so you can fo you can take a shotgun mic inside of like in the, in like harpex which is a which is a really great um, uh, A to B conversion plugin, and then it also has modifiers. So you can take um, your, your ambience, and if you really like one thing that happened, footsteps or something like that, you can focus um, a mono mic inside of the ambisonics uh, four-channel, multi-channel um, image already. So um, there's definitely really cool uses for sound effects gathering in that way. Very flexible, the way you can um, output it. 
right? I'm also imagining scenes uh, where there's foreground actors speaking, but in the background there's some things going on like car drive-bys maybe that are actually part of the script, uh, airplane flybys, that kind of thing. Um, do you see the usefulness for an ambio mic uh, re recording that so you've got the actual depth? While you're recording dialogue? Well, the, while recording dialogue, but the, often those things happen between dialogue, right? It wouldn't be necessarily usable with overlapping. Yeah. Uh, if you're, I guess you'd be concerned about the, it picking up the dialogue itself. Yeah, so I, I did a movie called Lucky You. It was mm -hmm. about poker. And, uh, and they thought, you know, we want to really capture the realism of all the poker chips and the people and all mm -hmm. this. And they did that. And... Um, you know, there's a reason why, at the end of the day, people think we just put a microphone out and then you hear everything, because it's all built by scratch. So, of course, we're in the mix, and the director goes, man, everything's sounding great. Can you bring the background walla back a little bit? And I'm like, no. You, you, it's all married. So I think the problem is you've got to remember that in post, the reason why we build everything up and we create everything is we want to hear clean, crisp dialogue. And let's say the actor's done in a wonderful little performance, it's great, and some actor or somebody in the background just makes a noise that's distracting. We can try to RX it out, but now it just adds more time. So sometimes there's something to be said for, again, the traditions of, of creating quieter dialogue and room, room noise and room ambiences and getting the, the feel of the room, absolutely. But when we start making other things that make sounds in the background, you're, you're married to it. Sure. You've got to love it. Otherwise, we've got to go to ADR and who wants to do that? Right, yeah. And then the, that gets into the, I guess, the differences between close micing all the time with lavaliers versus the natural effect of an overhead boom microphone, which is more likely to pick up noises we don't want. But you know, there's a trade-off and a technique. And um, hopefully we'll get good enough where we can make, you know, make the best of all that and, and, and find, the, find the best balance. So um, anything else to throw in there about your guys' experience with, with uh, ambisonic recording and the future? Well, I can talk a little bit about um, just how we came up backstage, but the discussion of, of IMAX. Um, uh, we, you know, the original desire was to have the screen so big that the viewer no longer thinks they're outside of the film. They feel like they're inside the film. And that's kind of the, the image maximum ideal. And then some of the work we've been doing now um, in, for example, the Holodome, uh, which is up at the Museum of Pop in Seattle. Um, but they're building um, holodomes all over the world. And um, these are basically 16 by 16 foot domes. They have four projectors in the top um, that are 9K each. That's a lot of, you know, pixels. And it's projecting down on all the walls and on the floor. You have very minimal shadow. And so the content that you're viewing, all of a sudden, you're inside it. So you're basically having virtual reality experience without needing to put on goggles of any kind. And there's speakers hidden behind the walls. It's acoustically uh, transparent fabric. Um, and you have these incredibly rich experiences. So the first time I had that experience, um, I had the same reaction as I think a lot of people, which is, oh, this is where it's all going, right? This is, if, if IMAX had, a, had access to that, they would have invested in that. So in that sense, if it's all going in that direction, then we can imagine, and maybe the not-so-distant future, that our movie theaters will be you know, 
full projections and then your dream of, you know, the lexicon experience. Of, you're no longer in a small room looking at large content. You feel like you're in a large room in that content. Yeah. And there's no um, distinction anymore. Uh, so one of the experiences we had was seeing um, a projection of a, it was the uh, Seattle Seahawks Stadium. And, and, and it's in, you know, very high pixel count and fantastic ambisonic sound. And all of a sudden, you know, you just realize the walls have disappeared and you no longer think you're in this dome, you just think you're in the stadium. It's a very real experience, it's quite shocking. And so the reason I mentioned it is because I think uh, when we, you know, look at immersive media, which is, let's say, the more current grouping for all of these things, um, then the role of ambisonic and however you can uh, contribute to that sense of immersion uh, with whatever tools you can, including ambisonic recording, becomes very relevant. And so we'll have these experiences in theme parks, in various kinds of location-based entertainment, museums, planetariums. But very feasibly, the future home theater room is going to be like that. They can pop these up in, you know, in a day. Yeah, and, uh, and we're there right now with Atmos and Atmos in the home. Uh, we're streaming in Atmos. Uh, so yeah, we're, Work the mic a little closer there. If you would. We're, there, we're there, streaming yeah. in Atmos, and so are many others. Uh, and I w had the the fortunate privilege to go to the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany a few weeks ago around IBC, and I heard their 22-channel demo room, their NHK surround demo room, and I could close my eyes, and I was listening to a 20-mic recording from out in the snow uh, next to a, a few churches, and I could hear the bells, and I could hear the, the reflections off of the buildings, and I closed my eyes, and I could hear people march, soldiers marching in the distance, and I was there. I, was, I wasn't in a demo room in Germany anymore. And with audio, we're, we're already there, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't necessarily have to wait for a picture to catch up. Mm -hmm. And I'll say one thing in a real, uh, something I did in the more conventional was kind of cool was uh, I did a movie called Nightcrawler. And one of the things that I wanted to do was everything, a lot of it takes place in a car. And the director said, well, I want to really hear LA. I want to understand LA. So instead of just doing backgrounds like everybody does and you put a microphone in a single point and you just let everything wrap around you, I decided instead to take a multi-channel mic, take it out of my sunroof, uh, drive down Hollywood Boulevard at about 20 miles an hour, and then go down Western. So the whole background track is basically moving through the streets uh, in real time, in multi-channel. So as you go through, the whole room basically changes based on where you are. And it was a very cool effect. It's very subtle, because it feels very natural, but there was a lot more that went into it. It wasn't just, uh, I'm gonna park in front of a building and let the world go around me. I went around the world and it was a, it was a really cool effect. So when you were passing by people talking, they kind of sort of lightly Doppler, hey man, it's really good. And then you hear all this really great stuff and even little bits of music that we were able to use because it was undefinable. Uh, you heard like, get out, and then next thing you know, it was gone. And it very smoothly went from front to back. Um, and, you, and by doing it and going so slow, uh, I never heard the car. Next time I have to use a Tesla. So, <laughs> so Ben, it looked like you had something. You're, the, I, saw, I saw the microphone getting close. but oh, uh, no. Okay, you're happy right now. Okay. So one point I want to make that's very important. Um, 
in, 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 in case somebody thinks, well, it's just getting a, uh, an array of four microphones um, and, and recording them on separate tracks, like, like they said, it's extremely important, it's vital that they be recorded at exactly the, the same gain and the same levels so that, so that the uh, image stays accurate. Uh, and to accomplish that, it's um, from my experience in trying to set recorders up to do that, it's virtually impossible to, 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 do, to do that manually because it, once you get them set uh, manually uh, with, with a certain master gain setting, when that gain setting changes, they all change a differently. So the, the recorder manufacturers that have built in accommodations for ambient recording, ambisonic recording, uh, they've considered all that and the, the input gains and the levels are exact. So that you control it with one, with one fader um, and, and they remain that exact throughout. Okay, I'm afraid that's all the time we have, but I think we're probably, we'll all stand around for a little while. If you've got other questions, just come on up and talk about it. But uh, one thing I want to leave everybody with this thought is that um, uh, VR, 3D, ambisonic uh, surround type recording is real. It's, it's real now. It's, it's not just something that was a possibility. It's here. Uh, it's got a long ways to go, but I think it's going to happen in a fairly short time. Also, the... Um, it, because we are at the beginning of this you know, rebirth of 3D recording, um, we're very lucky to have four guys who are on the cutting edge. So thanks very much, guys, for, for showing up. And, mm -hmm. Yeah.